I would like to say hello again to all the audience, the rapidly increasing volume of people and institutions who are following the United Nations Audiovisual College, one could call it, of international law. It's one of those interesting innovations in the teaching, the study of our discipline, international law, in response to the new developments in communication. I've had the privilege and pleasure of being with you as an audience in a number of earlier lectures, uh, the first of which was on coexistence and the Cold War. We are in many respects still living with the consequences of the ending of the Cold War. The Cold War ended symbolically in 1989-1990 with the fall of the Berlin Wall and um, the treaty that uh, the 2 plus 4 treaty was called that, that uh, sanctioned the reunification of Germany and the normalization of relations between East and West in Europe after the long period of bipolarity, the two opposing uh, uh, political military blocs in Europe and in the world community at large. In my coexistence lecture, I had suggested to you that what began as a political ideological struggle of high emotional intensity and rhetorical verve um, gave way in time because it was based on the reality of the end of war in Europe in 1945, the um, agreements that had been made at Yalta on the effective division of political military power in Europe. Uh, what began uh, as a political ideological struggle uh, increasingly took on a more normal and balanced um, situation. Um, in effect, coexistence began as a concept of recognizing the reality of the balance of military power in the world community, the prime necessity at all costs of avoiding a nuclear conflict between the two superpowers who dominated their respective blocs. And uh, on that basis uh, led on inevitably to a series of highly pragmatic steps on nuclear and general disarmament, on reduction of tensions, and in a certain sense, uh, an introduction of a sort of Metternichian balance of power in Europe. All things end, of course, and the very success of the pragmatic accommodation between the two superpowers, the concomitant theories that went with that and reflected the political reality that uh, there were spheres of influence and principles of non-intervention by each block and the other's internal affairs as they judged them. Uh, the, these matters in their own way produced a conservative, rather static view of the balance of power that was unchanging and was an opposition to change, fundamental change. So when the Cold War ended, symbolically, it had already been, in a way, buried a number of years before, but when it ended, there was an expectation, probably unrealistic at the time, that you would have a new world community without conflict, that the peaceful virtues of trade and commerce and uh, commercial intercourse and interchange would take over and that a new liberalism would emerge. 
you had scholars saying history has ended. There's no room for history anymore. The liberal democracy has won. That was, of course, a Eurocentric uh, North American conception of history. And the reality, of course, was that events kept moving of their own momentum. I think one of the crucial changes was the collapse of the Soviet bloc, which was probably inevitable. In any case, the hegemonial control by the Soviet Union of its allies, probably inevitable in any sense, but it occurred perhaps more suddenly than it should have. I think in the crucial uh, departure of, Premier, of uh, President Gorbachev, who had been the leader from coexistence on through detente and cooperation, international relations, and had prompted um, his own reforms in the Soviet Union. His replacement by a populist leader, Yeltsin, who presided over the dissolution of the national uh, properties, the national trusts, the uh, great trusts in uh, oil, steel, um, natural resources, and um, gave way eventually to a uh, difficult internal situation in the Soviet Union and an inability to exercise control over the Soviet bloc. The Soviet bloc by itself disappeared. So what you have is a period of testing what sort of new world public order are we going to get. And one of the things that did emerge, this conservative side of coexistence and detente, was that at many tension issues that existed before World War II in Europe, in Asia, and in uh, the colonial territories of Africa and Asia, South America to the extent one can speak of that, uh, these tensions came to the surface. They had been kept in check by the balance of power, the uh, concept of coexistence, non-interference, and they suddenly emerged. And so what we have had in the post-Cold War period is a testing period which we see in operation in certain problem areas, specific problem areas. And I'll look at these now, the problems of the Balkans, the state of Yugoslavia, probably is a multi national state should not have been put together in that way at Versailles. It was unified as a way of preserving a sort of intra-European balance of power against any revived Germany or Austria-Hungary or the original losers of Versailles. Um, but it happened to function very well under Marshal Tito Yugoslavia was a leader in thinking and action in the United Nations General Assembly, in United Nations circles in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, much admired in foreign policy as a leader of the group of 77, the emerging countries, uh, the developing countries. But it was widely believed that after Tito's passing, which would be more or less inevitable, that it might be under severe challenge. And the crisis in Yugoslavia in the uh, 1990s demonstrates this truth. Errors clearly in internal Yugoslav politics, the autonomous republics had conflicting as well as concurring ideas, and cooperation which had existed was shattered by intransigent personal leadership in some of the constituent republics. But at the opening of the 1990s, a clear choice had to be made. There were those when it looked as if Yugoslavia would be in the brink of civil war and disintegration, there were those in the European concert, um, 
led by President Mitterrand, supported by the German Chancellor Kohl, and with the support of uh, President Bush Sr. and uh, Boutros Boutroscali, the UN Secretary General, who felt that the integrity of Yugoslavia should be maintained until there could be agreement if there were to be dis dissolution uh, of the uh, state, if there could be agreement on rectification of the internal frontiers, which had been juggled somewhat to produce, uh, perhaps facilitate more multi-racial constituent republics, internal re rectification of those frontiers, and peaceful transfers of population and assistance financially in those then, if that were to be the solution. The schism in, the, in this uh, original agreement among, um, among the leaders I've spoken of um, occurred when Chancellor Kohl of Germany, under internal political pressures, decided to proceed to immediate recognition of the uh, uh, breakaway republics in the north, Croatia and uh, Slovenia. Um, this really was a testing of the new post-World Order system, post-Cold War Order system. Uh, what do you do? Do you maintain territorial integrity by using whatever power you have, the leaders of the world community, to do that? Do you recognize that the self-determination principle can and should be applied to allow ethnic cultural communities to go their own way? Do you seek accommodation? Do you seek to divide the parties? Well, the war of the Yugoslav succession went on essentially for 10 years. Um, there was an attempt, uh, Dayton Accord, 1997, to produce compromise formulae. Uh, that gave way um, to a decision to use military power, to use uh, armed intervention as a way of producing an outcome. It was an issue that didn't occur overnight. It was debated in national parliaments, in the Canadian parliament, the two very lengthy debates, all-party debates, in the House of Commons on the issue should we take part in military action to enforce a solution, if necessary, or should we not? One of the interesting things emerging was a general all-party conclusion, uh, this was before the military action was started, uh, that um, the, any decision should be made by the United Nations and any action should be under the aegis of the United Nations, of the UN Charter, and the Charter-based international law. Um, the actual campaign in Yugoslavia, though, was conducted differently. There was a decision made to go outside the United Nations Charter to undertake direct military action outside the United Nations Charter and without the prerequisite uh, to uh, the application of the UN Charter, a precise, precisely defined uh, prior resolution of the United Nations Security Council. The bombing campaign, uh, aerial bombing campaign uh, particularly produced its own reaction. The results were not as quick as expected. The civilian casualties were there. And although the matter was settled and the argument had always been made that you could not expect UN action uh, for military intervention, support of military intervention, because of a potential veto by one of the permanent members of the Security Council, in the end uh, to produce 
what was a, a politically uh, acceptable, in a way, pace-saving accommodation for all parties and uh, allow the moving parties to withdraw uh, gracefully. Um, in, in the end, um, all powers had to be involved, including, of course, the Russia, which had been always said uh, would have vetoed any affirmative action of uh, a military character. I mention Kosovo because everything, in a way, that we're dealing with in the conflicts, international conflicts since, goes back to that. The British House of Commons set up its own committee to examine this um, issue. Looking back, the uh, Sir Ian Brownlee, I think probably uh, the most interesting of the American, of the British uh, international lawyers of the uh, end of the uh, end of the 20th century, early early part of the new century, came out very strongly against use of armed force outside the United Nations Charter. Uh, his opinion, uh, widely copied, widely followed, a committee of the Canadian Senate relied on it implicitly for its own report saying that the use of armed force is only permissible under international law where it's done under the UN Charter and with the prior uh, authority of a UN Security Council resolution, or failing that on the United Nation, uh, Uniting for Peace uh, precedent of the 1950 Korean uh, conflict on a two-third majority resolution of the UN General Assembly. So, this is the, in a way, the Kosovo critique, and what I think I'm correct in saying has been the general position within classical international law, updated in its uh, contemporary uh, in its contemporary era, um, and it colours and influences actions on the use of force in other armed conflicts that arose. The September 11th, um, uh, 2001, Twin Tower, the terrorist outrages against New York City, the United States, of course, um, produced its own immediate reaction uh, against the alleged perpetrators, I don't think there was any doubt, they claimed the uh, credit for it, the Al-Qaeda organization, and that produced in its own way um, military action in relation to Afghanistan, where the Al-Qaeda movement had succeeded in forming, uh, attaining asylum and being part of the government forces. It arose, however, more immediately thereafter in the Iraq crisis of March 2003. In relation to Iraq, the initiative was taken by the British government under Prime Minister Blair and the United States government under President Bush. Um, relying on three counts uh, that were raised against the, uh, against the Iraqi government, Saddam Hussein, uh, the alleged collaboration with Al-Qaeda organization, to the presence of weapons of mass destruction of an advance force ready and able to be used at short notice. I think in P Prime Minister Blair's uh, language, a 45 second uh, possibility against neighboring states. And uh, thirdly, the purchase 
of high-state uranium from a French-African uh, state, Niger, uh, for use in uh, manufacture of nuclear warheads and nuclear missiles. Um, this latter story was easily, was later easily um, exploded because it was based on forged documents and couldn't be taken seriously. The other two elements uh, still remained, however. The United Nations formed its own fact-finding organization, its own fact-finding commission, headed by a very distinguished uh, Swedish jurist, known as a jurist, incidentally, Hans Blix, who had been briefly foreign minister of Sweden also, and head of the International Atomic Energy Agency. He was appointed to find the facts. Are there weapons of mass destruction in Iraq? Are the claims of their actionability valid? Is there, in a way, I suppose, a clear and present danger? Um, on the Al-Qaeda issue, um, the later conclusion is that there were no links at all between uh, the Iraqi government and Al-Qaeda. The links were with other governments and uh, other, other movements. But on the weapons of mass destruction, I think this was the issue on which the British and uh, United States government, with um, the help or well, the official adherence of the Spanish government, then headed by Prime Minister, whose government would shortly be defeated in the uh, next Spanish general elections. Uh, the decision, following, I think, an influence by Sir Ian Brownlee's uh, views, uh, the decision was made to go to the United Nations Security Council and ask for an authority for military intervention against the Iraqi government. It went to the United Nations. Um, it was not successful, however. It became, in offense, a lapsed motion because it became very clear that it had no support beyond the three original sponsors. The reigning view in the Security Council was that facts are crucial, the fact-finding element that on which any international law claims are posited, uh, that the United Nations had its own skilled expert commission at work. Those of us who knew uh, know, uh, Hans Blix had no doubt of his personal integrity, had no doubt of his extreme technical competence in these areas, and uh, his unwillingness to take positions unless he was sure of the facts. On this basis, I would have to tell you that the decision in the Security Council, the non-decision not to go on to adopt the uh, British-US uh, motion, uh, had wide support. The Prime Minister of Canada for example, Jean Chrétien, a man not especially involved in foreign policy other than international trade, but known for his high common sense, said, look, we have a fact finder. The fact finder has found as yet that he's not satisfied that there are weapons of mass destruction and he is not permitted, he is not committed to, he's not prepared to commit himself to any action and we follow his advice. More importantly, uh, the uh, presidents of Mexico and uh, of Chile, who are members of the uh, United Nations Security Council and having a vote, and by the way, close personally for other reasons, inter-American reasons with Prime Minister Kretscher, were convinced of the same uh, argument. And insofar as Latin America, is uh, historically really the prime source of Article 27 of the UN Charter, the non-intervention um, article. 
um, I think this is what carried the day. So that the action took place as in uh, Kosovo, um, where essentially, of course, a larger number of powers were involved outside the UN Charter, outside uh, international law, charter law at the time. The action took place in Iraq by a so-called coalition of the willing, led by the United States, a very small number of powers, and basically all, um, you might say, Western powers in the formation and outlook. So you get a challenge to the concept of a unified approach to international law and the use of force in the post-Cold War period. Why, how can it be bridged? It has been a difficult period in the renewed involvement in Afghanistan after uh, 2003, you do find more European states and North American states for that matter being involved in operations. But in those situations, um, the United Nations base is established and is there. The larger issue remains uh, what is what is really presented in terms of a dichotomy between multilateralism, classical diplomacy within the United Nations, which is the basis of the classical international law, contemporary classical international law approach to use of armed force. What is involved there is the dichotomy between that and the concept of unilateralism where states can of their own accord and in their own judgment and going beyond obviously the limited area where personal state judgment is crucial, self-defense under the UN Charter. Um, this, is, this is where the um, battle intellectually remains in international law. Even, by the way, with the issue of self-defense under the Charter, uh, it is agreed, I think, in the classical writings, and they were cited frequently today, what the, uh, what the uh, Australian um, jurist Julius Stone cited as the law on self-defense. He cited the example, if you have knowledge of nuclear weapons primed and ready to strike and fired at short notice, then you can exercise unilaterally a right to self-defense. But the burden of proof, of course, will be after the event is on you as a state invoking that claim, and it is an exceptional situation. This, uh, of course, takes us into more contemporary issues, and uh, in a way it's a reflection, I suppose, reflected in U.S. politics, and how could it not be otherwise as the uh, still, I suppose, leading power in political military terms? How could it be otherwise? The argument for unilateralism as opposed to multilateralism and I suppose one of the interesting uh, developments here in diplomatic terms is the change of presidency in the United States, the election of uh, President Obama, who announced very early that he was returning to multilateralism, returning to multiple action, and within the United Nations Charter. And uh, I think there has been uh, general uh, support and encouragement for that change of attitude, although, of course, the issues still remain uh, in concrete problem situations. What actually does that mean? 
and in what situations uh, would the facts justify a call for armed intervention uh, against a, another state. Well, as I say, the starting point would be, I think still, the classical international law position, as I've stated, that armed intervention to be valid under international law would, apart from the exception of self-defense, to be constrictly construed and, and construed in a limited way, the action must have a prior authorization, a prior mandate, voted specifically and in terms by a UN Security Council resolution. Uh, or, in the event of um, the use, a controversial use or attempted use of a veto power, the fallback position, action by the UN General Assembly on the Uniting for Peace uh, precedent of 1950, um, but the two-third majority, of course, assuring a full, uh, fully um, argued and uh, fully sub substantially supported um, uh, initiative. There are certain other new developments that arise and we take them into account in terms, I've taken them into account in some of my later lectures. I refer you to a lecture on multiculturalism and international law and uh, the uh, follow-up one on the new pluralism in international law, which is in a way a step beyond multiculturalism. What is multiculturalism in its political manifestation expressed in constitutional legal terms? It is a challenge in a way to the status quo at war's end in 1945 to the creation of the United Nations in its original structure based on the assumed, the postulated balance of power in the world community at that period. The big five, the permanent members of the Security Council with the right of veto attaching to them and in a Security Council there was originally only 11 members. Later, as we now know, of course, in, uh, enlarged to 15 members. The big five, the permanent members, do reflect the postulated reality of power in 1945. The um, United States and Russia, of course, Britain, France and China, which in those days was the nationalist government of China. Um, that, by the way, is a, uh, as a legal fact and perhaps a politically unrealistic situation it continued until eventually China, one was admitted, uh, was seated as uh, the People's Republic was seated in the Chinese chair in the United, in the Security Council in the United Nations. But looking at the realities, if one were rewriting the UN Charter today and one were deciding to retain a veto, a veto power for permanent members, one might designate the permanent members otherwise than was done in 1945. It would be difficult today to exclude the Republic of India from permanent member status. It represents over a billion people. It has a highly sophisticated constitutional federal system. Some constitutional scholars would consider it taking into account the problems it has to deal with, the challenges, everything else. It probably is the most successful 
operational example of the Westminster style, the British style constitutional system in existence today, how can it be excluded in terms of its growing, of the political sophistication of its elite, including the judicial elite, its legal elite, and also its important world trade and commerce? How can it be excluded? Then you would also say, well, looking at other terms and other realities, um, shouldn't Germany be accorded a similar status? It is the powerhouse of Europe in industrial terms and in financial terms, as we're now uh, recognizing a highly sophisticated political elite. Why wasn't it included in 1945? Of course, it was a defeated power, and they were not invited to the San Francisco Founding Nations Conference for the United Nations. Um, same would apply to Japan. Uh, again, uh, could or should Japan be ignored today? The new countries, the emerging Brazil, uh, high sophistication, high, a future really beyond limits in commercial industrial terms, and a multicultural society in its own right, with a genuine element of equality in distribution of the goods of society and recognition in public life. So we're saying that a new United Nations would obviously have to take account of the new forces. And if the Constitution of the United Nations were to remain in its present form, 15 members, five permanent members, it could hardly be done without affecting the status of some existing members. So decisions on the use of force might be rather different if there was a different composition. The fear of the veto in the Security Council might be viewed differently all these things in a constitutional society of a national form could be achieved and would be achieved by the progress of internal reform and modernization and updating. There have been proposals, they're current, for changing the composition of the Security Council. They have usually, though, been viewed in an incremental way of simply increasing the numbers and the numbers of permanent members. That is often a United Nations remedy for a more fundamental constitutional innovation. We've seen it happen with the International Law Commission, which probably is less, dare, dare I say this, less influential as a body than the original group formed in 1946 bright, interesting people, widely diverse in character. The moment you increase the numbers, you go from the original number, you jump to 18, you jump to 24, you get on that into the 30s, you get into 34. The nature of decision-making changes and also the nature of the people represented. I would only have to say that the movement for reform, internal reform in the United Nations, is hard to achieve, not impossible, but it is an obvious, it is an obvious bar to multicultural consensus and support for influential decisions. One could take the, uh, one could take in uh, 2011 the military interventions in Libya, the, uh, Libya, as an illustration of the problems here, the Security Council was asked to support an armed intervention in behalf of rebel authority, uh, rebel organizations within the Libyan state. It was asked to intervene, a motion authorizing the establishment 
of an aerial and no no fly zone was approved by the Security Council by 10 votes out of 15. Um, 10 votes out of 15. There were, however, five abstentions. It was established very early in the United Nations history that notwithstanding the actual literal reading of the UN Charter, the con which requires the concurring votes of the permanent members, an abstention should, as a matter of practice, not be treated as a veto. This is old practice. It was bitterly opposed at the time by the Soviet Union. Um, but this is 1950. But today, today, it is impossible to argue, in view of this long-standing practice or convention, that the abstention of five vitiated the legality of the resolution 1973. But it is significant that the five abstaining countries, if you look at them, the, four, the new group, the new ginger group, one might say internationally, the BRIC group, Brazil, Russia, India, China, are among the abstainers. There are no, there are no, there's no significant East Asian support. There's no significant Latin American support in the vote. Does a decision on the use of armed force, armed intervention by the United Nations, should it be predicated today upon a sufficient multicultural, plural cultural, if you wish, support? And if so, how should the relevant UN regional organization uh, for the problem area be consulted in advance? Should its views be sought? Should its advice be sought? Not necessarily as controlling, if it emerges, it doesn't seem reasonable, but shouldn't it be sought? I think one of the problems in relation to the Libyan decision, which requires further examination, is could there have been, should there have been, a fuller role for African Union, Af the African Union? Uh, this is the successor organization the Organization of African States, which was established 40 years ago with uh, the later UN Secretary General, uh, Boutros Boutros Ghali, um, as a key player and key representative and uh, ultimate uh, Secretary General. Um, the absence of serious in-depth consultation with the organization of the African Union is one of the more interesting facts in the Libyan decision. The, um, the absence of any positive response one way or another in discussion, the African Union's proposal for a truce between conflicting parties in what, in many views, in the African Union was a, an internal civil war, I think is one of the elements that uh, raises the question whether a decision on the use of armed force today under the UN Charter, under charter-based international law, and um, with the prior authority of the United Nations Security Council or on the Uniting for Peace uh, precedent of 1950 in the event of a um, uh, veto in the Security Council, which by the way didn't occur this time, uh, participation of the regional organization. 
um, the regional organizations are a part of the United Nations structure, and I think the principle of prior consultation with them, a primary step, not, a, not an endless consultation, mindless delay, but I think this becomes a, a key factor in approaching the use of force and approaching international law in, uh, in the present era. The role of NATO is an interesting role because NATO was, in its historical origins, a purely defensive political military organization established as soon as the Cold War emerged and balanced on the Soviet side of this bipolar world public order of the Cold War period by the Warsaw Pact Alliance. I have the two bodies, NATO and the uh, Warsaw Pact. It became apparent, though, as coexistence emerged from the early ideological conflict and then uh, detente ripened into detente and cooperation, the NATO and the Warsaw Pact acted with high pragmatism and high political realism and with a conscious policy of avoiding armed conflict between the two blocs. Korean War 1950 was perhaps the early exception that provided the lesson I cited this earlier in this address by saying that uh, it also indicated the conservative aspect of the bipolar world, the maintenance of the status quo. But if you uh, go, go back to this period, you can say NATO and the Warsaw Pact performed very well and contributed to the lessening of tension and ultimately, of course, to the end of the Cold War. But that was then and that is, uh, this is now. And what is the situation of NATO as a defensive, uh, regionally limited, in its membership, uh, military alliance in international law? What role does it have? North Atlantic Treaty Organization, by definition, North America, the United States and Canada, and originally Western Europe, particularly Northern Western Europe. The Libyan dispute was a situation involving North Africa. Um, the only European presence in Africa, of course, historically, is the colonial presence. Originally, um, French, long-standing French interests, British interests, Libya, because at the time the grab for Africa was on at the Congress of Berlin in, 19, in 1885, it just seemed to be endless stretches of sand. There were no obvious economic resources. Oil hadn't been discovered then. It wasn't part of world politics in the same sense it is today. It became by default almost as the Ottoman Empire crumbled. It became an Italian colony in 1911. In the Desert War aspect of World War II, the British forces uh, drove um, the Italian uh, forces out of Libya. It became under British military occupation which continued to 1952. Oil still hadn't been discovered. The British abandoned it, but not before installing. Um, it might have been made, by the way, into a United Nations Trust territory. That would have been an interesting development. Um, it, it became, by default, um, a, an ex-colonial, you might say de facto colonial territory the colonial power, Great Britain, withdrew, installed its own chosen leader, a king, who was appointed for the purposes, and that was the state of uh, Libya until eventually a uh, young military um, 
leaders uprising, um, forcibly removed it in uh, the late 1960s and established what was then uh, became the government of Libya for a long, long period, 40, 40 years. Um, if in these situations you are dealing with a, a regional problem, initially a regional problem, the obligation to consult other member states of the region, I think, becomes a, an obvious one. It is probably unfortunate that uh, the main initiative in the Lib Libyan approach to re resolution, um, armed, resolution armed action in Libya came from uh, the two former colonial powers, but under the circumstances, um, there was wider support, although muted in the public sense. The American support was very crucial, and I think influential, even if it was muted, and the United States insisted it should be a, a more restrained public role. But it certainly influenced other NATO countries to participate. But it still raises the problem, why is it so essentially a North American, an Atlanticist, uh, Atlantocentric coalition? Why aren't the Indians there? Why aren't the Japanese there? Once you go beyond Africa, don't you need these other countries in? I recognize these, I raise these issues simply because the case for United Nations reform, fundamental reform, cannot be allowed to continue indefinitely. It was certainly one of the great aims of uh, Boutrous Boutrous Ghali as the first African Secretary General of the United Nations. He was denied the customary second term for a UN Secretary General, but there is no question reform of the United Nations, changing the membership and the Security Council, the permanent members, either if it has to be pragmatically step by step by adding new permanent members, difficult as that is to achieve under the UN Charter provisions as a constitutional form, or if it's to be a total constitutional ovation. This was his main, a main objective of his campaign for a second term as Secretary General, and he would undoubtedly have carried it through very vigorously if re-elected. But the movement for change is essentially static. It's not occurring. I do think, and it does become very important, in the, in the pursuit of new rules, contemporary rules on the use of armed force, it, the issue cannot be divorced from representativeness of the main decision-making uh, institutions. Representativeness, you have to at least, I think, include other civilizations, other cultures, than the rather more restricted uh, membership um, uh, that existed in 1945, although this will come whether one likes it or not. The, it occurs at a time, though, unfortunately, when the issue of constitutional change in the United Nations proper is also involved in the issue of fundamental restructuring of associated United Nations institutions, coordinate institutions, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. The emergence of the new BRIC countries brought, as we know, in 2010, 2011, concerted debate among leading members of the BRIC group on reform of the decision-making structures of a world financial order. Uh, you need more involvement by other non-players. The polite, the polite tradition of an exchange uh, 
the IMF and the World Bank. The World Bank should always be an American. The IMF should always be headed by European and ideally by a French economist. Um, too narrow, too limited. The arguments are certainly helped by the collapse of Wall Street, the economic collapse of Wall Street 2008 and 9 onwards, the decline in prestige of the established world banking authorities in New York, Wall Street, and um, London, in Paris, and other traditional centers, so that the cause of constitutional reform becomes blurred, becomes confused with other larger issues. It may well be that this will induce greater caution in situations where more initiatives by the United Nations will become relevant. The collapse of the Cold War, as we've said, revived ethnocultural and other differences in multinational states all around the world and the desire for change. The problems are viewed interstitially by bodies like the World Court, the ruling, for example, that it is um, the ruling that it is given in a recent case, one of the uh, consequences of the Balkan Wars, the War of the Yugoslav Secession, the World Court had to rule in 2011 early right. on whether a breakaway province within the, within the former Yugoslav Republic is entitled of its own volition to self-determine itself away, to create another mini-state. Um, if it has that right, is there a further right of a minority within this minority to self-determination away again? Um, a lot has been forgotten of the federal principle and the concept, which is certainly recognized in the Declaration of Friendly Relations and Cooperation Among States, the great UN Declaration of uh, 1963, um, that self-determination can be achieved within a single constitutional order, a single state. It is an option. You don't have to go the whole way of fission. If you do, you may get an endless proliferation of new states. And what is in some senses a more alarming feature of this, the tendency for the new states that are broken away to become ethnoculturally pure, to try to become ethnoculturally pure, not necessarily to be concerned with their own minorities, but also not particularly intent on cooperation with former partners in their states. It is one of the losses, I think, of the end of the Cold War that the movement is continuing and advancing for breakup of existing, working, successful plural national states. So this is the this is the inheritance from the post-Cold War period. It's not yet resolved. I think it is clear unilateralism is out at this stage. The public relations, the prestige losses are too great. In any case, no single power, I think, is capable of solving present problems by military means alone. One looks at Iraq, one looks at Afghanistan, eight years of belligerent occupation effectively involved by the end of, by beginning of 2012, the occupying powers leaving, but the problems are unresolved because they were dealing with plural, cultural, plural, national 
societies, in some cases plural religious societies, um, which are held together in the past, but are bound to cause some form of implosion thereafter. I'd say again, um, the decision on intervention cannot, in my view, be a unilateral one. One cannot be, in a phrase that uh, Abe Chase, who was President Kennedy's very successful advisor in the peaceful resolution of an earlier, actually early Cold War conflict, the Cuban Missile Crisis, you cannot act as judge, jury, and Lord High Executioner in your own case. The judgment that we have a right to intervene. Um, I use the term was used, by the way, uh, before a right to intervention, humanitarian intervention, to protect our interests. This was long ago condemned in international law. Humanitarian intervention was one of the least desirable and least, least um, pleasant aspects of uh, imperial ventures in the 19th and uh, early 20th century. And one of the reasons Article 27 of the Charter was pressed so strongly at San Francisco in 1945. Humanitarian intervention usually meant uh, that combined colonial imperial powers would intervene, often in concert, because a local government had canceled usurious one-sided development contracts over natural resources had caught, and uh, were not to be allowed to get away with it. It was universally condemned humanitarian intervention um, by distinguished scholars, Briley is one, uh, Sir Herschel later judge in the World Court, another. Uh, it was dead by the end of, uh, end of World War I. It's a pity to see it revived under various synonyms. You need the, you need the extra participation in the decisions, and the decisions as to how and why forces to be used, the modalities of, of its application, the modalities of any supervening military occupation, belligerent occupation its, uh, and its continuance duration, these also need, I think, that extra outside participation in the decision-making. And I think this is one of the uh, truths that is emerging again. So, uh, we haven't we haven't completed the ending of the post-Cold War period. The new, a new, more pluralist world public order system is still in process of emerging. A new, more pluralist, inclusive world economic order system in process of emerging. But I think these are the lessons to be learned from these past crisis situations. And one of the reasons why um, the study is continuing, what are the lessons from Kosovo? Was it a mistake to operate outside the UN Charter? What are the lessons of Iraq? The narrowness of the intervention by the original uh, intervening powers the conclusions of those continued uh, unfortunate occupations, which in some cases may have made conditions worse rather than better in the countries occupied, if you speak of Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, these are lessons to be studied soberly and carefully, and they are the ideal matters for debate within this larger forum of the United Nations um, Audiovisual College, if I can call it that, of um, international law. I think one thing emerging is the Secretary General, provided he or she in the future, provided he or she in the future, has a broadly representative status and background in legal, cultural, and general terms, 
and has some of the spirit of those great secretaries general of the past, Dag Hammarskjöld um, and Boutrous Bouchagali, why the role becomes very important. It was for the secretary general to make the interpretation, and only for the secretary general. It is not capable for NATO to make that decision, to make the decision on how to interpret Resolution 1973-2011, to make the decision on the expansion from a, an air-to-air -air operation, no-fly zone, to one including air-to-ground attacks, to make sure it's compatible with international law. I haven't been able to study the complete dossiers involved, but it was a standard instruction, uh, I may say, in um, the Canadian uh, government situation in Kosovo, that there were instructions not to attack, uh, not to involved in air operations, which could in conflict with those 1977 protocols additional to the Geneva Conventions of 1949. These are the conventions, the 1977 ones, that in a sense prohibit bombardment of civilians or civilian property unless it can be guaranteed that there'll be no loss of civilian lives or civilian property. And uh, these were the instructions given um, and publicized to Canadian armed forces involved in the uh, aerial strikes in, uh, in the recent Liberan operations and were observed. And um, I, th I think this is the sort of dialogue that we now need to build the genuinely pluralist international organization, constitutional organization, and the decision-making on use of force compatibly with, with Chapter 7 of the United Nations Charter. Thank you for your attention and uh, my good wishes in the ongoing discussion and debate over these still unfinished issues. Thank you.